Cloud. All right. Well, welcome everybody. Um, it is so nice to have you all here for this lunch and learn. This is what I was really excited about. Um, this is part of a two session series on Jews and Broadway. We might enjoy this. Um, so, um, you know, people can get, you can keep your mics open, but if, if you like get a phone call or something, feel free to, to just mute it. Um, why don't so we, the, how about we mute everyone? And okay. then if someone has a, a question, they can that's, just, that's to, a just fine to keep a tick, but you need to hit the mute all otherwise. I'm going to do that. I'll mute you. Okay. I, I am not, don't think of this as silencing everyone's voices. Think of it as partially silencing everyone's voices. So this, this session in particular, if you're looking for Fiddler, that's next week. Because what we're going to talk about today is the, the Jews of Broadway, the Jewish people that made Broadway what it is, right? We know that when we list off the number of people on, the, the number of Jews on Broadway, the list goes on and on. Richard Rogers, Lorenz Hart, Jerome Kern, Oscar Hammerstein, both the first and the second, right? Um, Irving Berlin, the Gershwins, Yip Harburg, Kurt Weill, um, Adler Mraz, Sammy Kahn, uh, Stephen Schwartz, Stephen Sondheim, who you'll find out is a, a great hero of, of mine, a great hero of my family. Um, so, so many of the people who make American musical theater what it is are Jews. And what we're going to do today is sort of figure out why that is and how they shaped it. Um, you know, I grew up in a household where um, there was almost daily worship of what I believe are sort of the two main venues for, for Jewish immigrants in the early 20th century to become American, okay? And those are um, musical theater and baseball, right? These were quintessentially American things that allowed Jews to kind of cut their teeth on what it means to be a part of American society. But the, the story of Jews... Jewish people involved in Broadway and musical theater, I believe starts a little bit before, only a fan of one of the things. I like baseball. I'm just not obsessed with it. Um, but, but the point is the, the, the Jewish involvement in musical theater starts before Broadway and the American musical even exist. And it starts with professional Yiddish theater which we know started in Europe and then continued into the United States um, with the waves of Jewish immigration in the, the 19th century and early 20th century. Um, so, the, so mostly centered on, on Second Avenue in, in New York City, which is where most of the Jews lived, um, Yiddish theater kind of started it got really big in the US in the 1880s, which is when you start seeing huge waves of immigration by uh, Russian, Russian Jews, um, you know, who all know Yiddish. And in the 1880s, it was all about, it was all about like operettas and light comedic shows and kind of folly style reviews. Um, but what's really interesting is that they are all very Jewish stories, right? They're about rabbis and matchmakers and housewives getting ready for Shabbos. These are distinctly Jewish stories. Um, mo most of the non-Jewish stories you would see in Yiddish theater would have been translations of Gilbert and Sullivan or, or Shakespeare. Um, there was a golden age of serious Yiddish drama 
starting in 1892 with a show called The Yiddish King Lear. Um, but then as even more Jews came, they went back to being, um, they went back to being fun and light. But while, while it started off very, very Jewish, and even though the themes continued to be Jewish, by 1925, the New York Times had already declared that New York's uh, Yiddish theater was thoroughly Americanized. It became an American thing. Um, stepping back one second, why did Jews get into theater? Why would Jews be involved in theater? Um, there are a couple possible answers, right? Um, one of them could be, I, I think that the Jewish style of conversation and storytelling is naturally theatrical and a little dramatic. Um, linguistic scholars will point out that the most distinctive element of uh, sort of the Jewish conversational style is loudly interrupting each other, loudly and enthusiastically interrupting each other, right? So it, it might just be the way that we are. Um, second off, it was uh, musical theater and, and Jewish theater were a really good way to get a job. They couldn't really get jobs at any of the pre-established theaters. They couldn't really um, go to any of the music schools because they didn't allow in Jews, but this was sort of a new frontier, right? This was a, a new area for them to go into. The same way that a lot of Jews were at the center of early comic books, because they couldn't get into regular publishing. There were too many institutional barriers because they were Jewish. Um, another thing is that uh, all of the Jewish kids whose families could afford it were uh, getting piano lessons because it's, you know, they think, well, maybe it could be a living. Not really sure. Um, but the bottom line is that Yiddish theater was really big. And I think that's where you find the roots of Jewish involvement on Broadway. So I wanted to play um, two pieces from Yiddish theater and we're going to see where they sort of interact with American music. So the first one, um, I'm just gonna share, I'm going to share the lyrics of it because they are um, not as cute as you might think. But this um, was a song composed by Shalom Secunda with lyrics by Jacob Jacobs from the 1932 musical comedy, McCann Leben Normalos Neat, which means one could really live, but they won't let you. Um, it's called By Mir Beast Shane, which means to me you are beautiful. And it became a really big hit. Sammy Kahn, who's famous for Let It Snow, Let It Snow, Let It Snow, one of the secular Jewish Christmas songs, um, wrote an English version. And this is my favorite thing, right? And maybe you can listen to it with this in mind. Um, in 1938, this Yiddish song, like this Yiddish comedy song, um, was a huge hit in Nazi Germany because they did not realize it was written by a Jew. They thought it was some bizarre German dialect. Um, once they found out, they banned it, but everybody loved this song, um, even the people who hated the Jews the most. So let's listen. This is a recording by the, the Milken Archive, um, sung by Cantor Simon Spiro. Sollt sein schwarz wie a Tute, wenn die hast Eugen wie bei a Kute. Und wenn die hinkt se bisslich, hast hilt se ne fieslich, so geh du sad mich nicht. Und wenn die hast a narschen Schmechel, und wenn die hast wei soße Sechel, wenn die bist wild wann in die Jane, bist a viele Galiziane, so geh du sad mich nicht. 
That, that's one of the, you know, it's, a, it's, it's kind of a central part of the, the Yiddish musical canon, I think. And, and as Kander pointed out, the Andrew sisters did a version. It got really popular um, outside of just the Jewish world, which is sort of a theme that we'll see later once there are Jews who start writing specifically for that purpose. But the songs of Yiddish theater were written um, mostly for Yiddish or for, for Jewish audiences. Um, so that's from 1932. I want to go back in time a little bit to a slightly different song. Um, this one was written by uh, Abe Schwartz, who was one of the titans of Yiddish theater at the time. And uh, one thing, okay, last thing I'll say. One thing you'll notice about By Mir Shane is that it's like a funny little love song and also it's in a minor key. Um, you know, look at Klezmer, all the happy songs sound kind of sad. That's just a very Jewish thing. Um, but this piece we're going to listen to, which is called uh, De Grina Cousina, which means the, the greenhorn cousin, a greenhorn being kind of the stereotype of the new immigrant to America. Um, this is an example of a, a sort of archetypical song in Yiddish theater called the disillusionment song, which is um, about how the, the promise of the American dream sort of falls short a little for a lot of them. Do I know Yiddish? I know almost no Yiddish. <laughs> honestly, um, but I can read the letters because they're Hebrew. Um, but this is your, your classic disillusionment song. Um, and I want us to listen to it because then we're going to compare it to something a little bit different. Okay, so I'm gonna share, um, 
I'm, I'm going to share the, I'm not going to share the lyrics because we're going to, I'm going to read them to you in a second. Okay, so this this was sung by Theodore Bickles, who uh, Theodore B Bickle, Bickle maybe. Um, he he was one of the Tevyas. He he played Tevya a bunch of times. Some years get come and a cousine. Shame we go to see you in the green. Beckalach we write the pomeranz. Fisalach was betting sich zum Tanzen. Beckalach we write the pomeranz. Fisalach was betting sich zum Tanzen. Herralach we seiten webgelockte. Sein da lach wie Pera lach getokte, Eiger lach wie Himmelblöjen Frühling, Lieber lach wie Karscher lach hat Zwilling, Eiger lach wie Himmelblöjen Frühling, Lieber lach wie Karscher lach hat Zwilling. Nisch gegangen ist in Norgesprungen, Nisch gerettet ist in Norgesungen, Lebe die Peite sot sie wochenlang gekleben, bis von mir ist gar nicht nicht geblieben. Heint das ich bei Gegen, mein Cousine, und ich frage, was machst du etwas Griene? Sieht sie ab und legen in ihr Mine, brennt so Kolumbus ist Medine. Sieht sie ab und legen in ihr Mine, brennt so Kolumbus ist Medine. Right, so there, there is um, no mistaking that that is a Jewish song. It basically sounds like Klezmer. Um, and if we notice the, the lyrics, right, it's about a, a, a woman who's, who, someone who has a cousin who moves to America and then let's just go down to the middle here. Many years have since passed since they got them a job. My cousin has turned into a wreck. She slaved away for many years until nothing was left of her. Under her blue, beautiful eyes, black bags have appeared. The cheeks, those ruddy oranges, have aged and lost their greenhorn glow. Nowadays, when I meet my cousin and I ask her, how are you, greenhorn? She answers me with a crooked expression. Columbus's land can go to hell. Uh, I mean, obviously it was in the Yiddish. But this is your disillusionment song. This is the, the story of an immigrant coming to America, hearing that the streets are paved with gold, and then working for pennies in a, in a tailor shop, right? Um, it became kind of a theme. Uh, and I think that's something that's in Yiddish theater that, that's similar to almost every American musical you'll see. It, it is very often a story about an outsider trying to succeed, right? Because that's the Jewish story. Now, here's, here's something a little bit different. Um, I'm not going to show you a video, and there's a reason why. But keep the, the, the melody of that song in mind. And I want to play the intro to... Um, to, to a Gershwin song called Swanee. 
it, it's currently being sung by Al Jolson. And uh, while I'm playing it, I'll let you guess why I'm not going to show a video. So, but just listen to the melody of the introduction. I've been away from you a long time. I never thought I'd miss you so. Somehow I feel your love was real. So did did you hear that? Like the da 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 It's it's basically the same melody, right? Um, that that's how we're going to move into American musical theater because um many of the early composers were clearly influenced by Yiddish theater and klezmer. Um, other influences they brought in, however, came came from elsewhere. Um, so if you hadn't already guessed, um, here's the reason I didn't want to show a video of Swanee. Um, it is because it is sung by Al Jolson and it is one of his famous songs that he would sing in blackface, um, which is not a thing we like nowadays. Um, but in the, in the tens and twenties, um, many of the famous blackface performers were Jewish. Um, that was sort of the popular entertainment at the time. That's what they were doing. Uh, I am not excusing it. I, I want to make sure we all know that. I am not excusing it. Um, however, I, I do want to express something about why that may have been attractive to, um, to sort of the, the Jewish composers and performers at the time. And it's not just because it was popular. Um, but let's, let's do a set, uh, right. So let's do a second about the Gershwins first. Um, so George and Ira Gershwin are sort of the first real Jewish, um, Jewish Broadway folks that we're gonna be looking at right now. Um, they, were they were born respectively Jacob and Israel Gershowitz, right? Of course, back then you had to change your name as a Jew if you wanted to get popular in theater. Um, and they, they came from one of the Russian Jewish immigrant families that came in the early 1800, or the late 1800s. Um, in fact, th this was something I hadn't known. George Gershwin um, first tried writing music for the Yiddish theater, but it was rejected uh, for sounding too American. I thought that was just kind of funny. Um, but George Gershwin was the talented musician. Um, it's been said that his parents bought a piano for Ira for, uh, you know, to take piano lessons. George sat down at the piano and started playing immediately. Um, he was kind of a, uh, a natural. Um, but Ira became a famous lyricist. And one of the things he did was he would build his songs around American slang um, to make them kind of resonate with people. Um, they certainly included elements from Klezmer, Klezmer as we can hear in the introduction to Swanee there. Um, but G George Gershwin would spend his time at Tin Pan Alley listening to the famous African-American musicians of the time. Um, so he brought a lot of jazz and blues and ragtime and things like that onto Broadway. So he um, really drew from black music um, in terms of how he wrote. Um, which, which brings me back to, to blackface because one of the things that we see among the early Jewish Broadway writers and performers is that 
they were very often not comfortable telling their story through Jewish characters or explicitly Jewish story, right? They were writing these stories about outsiders, about African-Americans, about um, people in situations of poverty. Um, so they're fundamentally Jewish stories because they're about outsiders who are oppressed by a society who um, try to fight back against it, but they're telling their story through the stories of other peoples, the same way that a lot of the early slave songs, right, use the, the biblical narrative, right? Um, go, go down Moses, for example, right? That, that's using kind of the Jewish narrative to talk about the plight of African-American slaves. Um, so I, I think one of the most uh, complicated and interesting um, uses of the African-American narrative by the Gershwins um, was from what was then technically called an opera, um, Porgy and Bess, which is most famous for having um, a, an entirely uh, black cast. And I believe that the Gershwin estate still stipulates that all performances of it in the United States need to have a completely black cast. Um, it was first performed in 1935. It tells the story of uh, Porgy, who is uh, an African-American street beggar who saves a woman named Bess from her abusive lover and her drug dealer. Um, clearly the situation draws on stereotypes uh, about African-American life. Um, it became more controversial moving into the civil rights era. Um, I think it's slightly less controversial now. Um, but I, I think what's interesting is that when, when we, that there's gonna be something interesting that comes out of experiencing a clip from it. So this is um, the song, it ain't necessarily so, where all of the characters are having a uh, like a church picnic, and the drug dealer character um, is telling people that the things they read in the Bible aren't necessarily true. Um, this is from the 1993 uh, television adaptation. It ain't necessarily so. The things that you liable to read in the Bible, it ain't necessarily so. Little David was small, but oh my. Was Why do you 
very fun piece it's it's a little subversive clearly it's it's being sung by a character i believe we're not supposed to be sympathetic to um but this is the thing that i found really captivating about it um so the the sort of hook is uh you know it ain't necessarily so da, 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 da. um so if you've ever been to services on a saturday morning um, you know, before we read the Torah, there's a little blessing that we say that starts a Baruch Hu Adonai Hamvorach. Do you hear it? Hear it? I, I think it's very likely that the that George Gershwin borrowed that kind of melody. Um, he maybe directly from services, but certainly sort of the cultural memory of that kind of uh, that kind of scale stuck with him. Um, I just think it's really interesting that we have this sort of, uh, that, that the melody for a song sung by Black characters about how the stories in the Bible might not be true draws its influence from the blessing that we read at synagogue before the Torah. It, and, it's, and it speaks to sort of this symbiosis on er, in early musical theater between um, Jews and African-Americans. Um, Blackface was obviously a negative example of that kind of symbiosis, but so many of Gershwin's and other songs were later popularized by the great black performers of their time. Um, you know, Paul Robeson, who, who was a, a very famous African-American singer, he got he sang Ali Ali famously. He sang the Warsaw Ghetto Fighters uh, Partisans song. Um, he, he did a Kaddish. There was all of this, this um, mixing between black and Jewish music at the time. Um, I think part of that comes from the fact that you have two different groups that are both um, outside of the mainstream trying to trying to achieve mainstream success, right? Um, and, and so they're borrowing from each other and telling each other's stories through, through each other's, or telling their own stories through each other's stories. Um, so that, that's the Gershwins. Um, I, I want to be clear that the people I'm, I'm sort of highlighting are really representative of the time, right? Like there, there were lots of other people writing. For every Gershwin, there were another like 10 or 20 Jewish guys uh, banging away on the piano trying to make a buck off of some music. So the next guy I want to bring in, um, he, he, he was originally named Israel Balin. And, and Israel Balin 
1893, comes off of the ship at Ellis Island with his family at five years old, with his earliest memory being a pogrom. Um, that is a, a, an organized attack on the Jewish village in which his family lived. He remembers hiding in a ditch while the Cossacks burned the village. And he stepped off of that ship in New York. And uh, the first thing he noticed was how different he was from the rest of the people in America um, by virtue of being Jewish. Um, Israel Berlin would come to be known as Irving Berlin, which is a name that you may have heard. Um, his father was a cantor who taught him how to sing prayers. And he was clearly influenced by, by Yiddish music at home. Um, but he wanted to write popular music. He didn't want to write Jewish songs. Um, although some of his early works were kind of like, he wrote some kind of parody songs in the style of Jewish songs, but those were a novelty. That would be like, Yiddle on your fiddle, play some ragtime, or Jake, Jake, the Yiddish or baseball player, right? Those are clearly meant to be funny. I'm kind of poking fun at, at sort of the, the klezmer-y, Jewish-y kind of music. Um, but he's known for writing what have become some of the most popular songs in America. Um, you know him as having written White Christmas, which certainly at the time was the most popular Christmas song of all. Question comes up, why would a Jewish person write a Christmas song? Um, there was a market for it, basically. Um, he wrote the most popular Easter song, Easter Parade, and he wrote one of the most popular America songs, which is God Bless America. Um, during World War II, he wrote a musical about the United States Army called This is the Army, um, putting on the Ritz, um, famous for the musical Annie Get Your Gun. This, this guy is, is a, a titan of the American musical canon, right? Not, not so the, the Jewish musical canon, but we see his, his influences. Um, from, from his sort of cultural background. Um, but I, I think that, I, I think it's interesting because, you know, the, the Gershwins and Irving Berlin both like drew from kind of common Jewish musical themes, but they, they were really writing for American audiences. And, and those are, you know, Jews are also Americans. I want to make that clear, like not to bring up like a du dual loyalty kind of thing. But um, it, it kind of spoke to the, the American psyche in a way that basically he was more American than some Americans, I'm pretty sure. Like he got it more, more than people who lived here. Um, so here's one of his early pieces that we'll listen to just like a little teeny bit of. This was his first big hit, which was Alexander's Ragtime Band. Um, and I'm just going to share my sound. This is from 1911. Oh, my honey. Oh, my honey. Better hurry and let me end Ain't you going, ain't you going to the leader man, ragged meter man. All right, so so I think that gives us a little bit of a sense of that. You can hear he's using kind of American colloquial colloquialism, saying honey, saying ain't instead. Um he's kind of uh speaking to to the way that people speak on the streets. And obviously it includes elements of of black music from the time as well, like ragtime. Um but the song I, I really want us to listen to from uh, Irving Berlin is a song called Blue Skies, 
which you may have heard before. Um, it was written in 1926. This was a last, I didn't know this. It was a last minute addition to a Rogers and Hart musical called Betsy, um, which only ran for 39 performances, but the song became a big hit, which was uh, very something, that was very often something that would happen at the time. Back then you wrote a musical, not really to tell a story, but to uh, get some hits out of it, right? That's why a lot of the early musicals are, uh, it, it's more like a review. Um, so this was written after his, uh, I believe after the, the birth of his first daughter. So let me do this. Ladies and gentlemen, and invited transgendered species, in my study of Terran and Betazoid conjugal rights, I have discovered it is traditional to present the happy couple with a gift. Given Commander Riker's affection for archaic musical forms, I have elected to present the following as my gift in honor of their conjugation. Never saw the sun shining so bright. Never saw things going so right. Noticing the days hurrying by. When you're in love, my, how they fly. Oh, blue skies, smiling at me. Oh, that was that. Oh, I'm sorry. That was uh, clearly accidentally a depiction of the song Blue Skies from uh, Star Trek Nemesis, which is a good movie. One of my lower ranked uh, Star Trek movies though. But that just speaks to the, the reach of it, doesn't it? Here, here's, here's the version we're gonna listen to. <laughs> This is, you know, this is a song written after uh, Irving Berlin had his first daughter. Um, it's about the the joy of family life, and yet um, we notice that the chorus starts with with a minor with a minor chord. It starts in E minor, um, and Klezmer teaches us that even the happiest songs can sound a little bit sad. Um, but what we find is that a lot of Irving Berlin's kind of like quote novelty. Jewish songs, almost all of them from the time he wrote this, 
um, feature a shift from E minor in a verse to a major key in the chorus. So I think what's sort of Jewish about this song is this blend of major and minor uh, inflections. Um, th this was kind of characteristic of some of the, the Jewish composers at the time to the point that um, Richard Rogers recalls meeting Cole Porter who told him that the key to writing hits is to write Jewish tunes. So wh whatever that means. Um, and that was performed by Irving Kaufman who was a uh, vaudeville performer at the time. The other one was uh, Brent Spinner as Data in Star Trek Nemesis. So this brings us to um, three men uh, who came from sort of a, a different a different kind of background from Berlin and the Gershwins. Um, these are second generation Jewish immigrants. They come uh, mostly from German Jewish families. Uh, so th that is Richard Rogers, Lorenz Hart, and Oscar Hammerstein the second, right? Um, so, uh, so I wanna point out at first, I am related to Richard Rogers, it turns out. That's something that, that my family is fairly proud of. Um, my dad's mom's mom, mom, who is my great, great grandfather on my father's side, um, her husband and Richard Rogers' father-in-law were first cousins. So basically, my great, great, great grandfather was cousins with Richard Rogers' wife. So not a blood relation, but still, I, I think that's pretty big. I think that's big. So let's let's start with, um, oh, I have my notes here. So we'll, we'll start with Oscar Hammerstein, the second, right? Whose father, whose grandfather was Oscar Hammerstein, the first, who owned a number of theaters in New York City, right? He was kind of... Uh, New York theater royalty. Um, sorry, one second here. Um, R Richard Rogers, on the other hand, no, actually pretty much the same, was also born into a family of German Jewish immigrants. Um, they changed their names from Rogazinski and Lorenz Hart also came from a family of Jewish immigrants. Um, the reason I'm pairing them all together is because kind of their most famous couplings are Rogers and Hart and Rogers and Hammerstein, right? But they obviously all wrote other things. Um, Rogers and Hart went to the same summer camp, Camp Wigwam in Waterford, Maine, although not at the same time. Um, you know, be, going to summer camp was just a part of American culture. Um, interestingly enough, that same camp was also attended by Herbert Sondheim, and then later his son, son Stephen Sondheim, J.D. Salinger, Frank Lesser, and Charles Strauss, who's famous for writing Bye Bye Birdie and Annie. Um, but I still recommend that we send our kids to uh, URJ camps. And we can, um, even though there are places that seem to breed uh, famous composers by the by the bushel. Um, Rogers and Hart, as a team, are known for writing shows like Pal Joey and Babes in Arms in the 20s and 30s. Um, and these were the musicals that were more about, you know, generating hits, right? You want to sell the singles almost. Um, so Lady, Lady is a Tramp, My Funny Valentine, those come from there. But you could have those songs without the without the musicals, essentially, which is what happened. Um, when Rodgers and Hammerstein start working together, you get shows more like um, Oklahoma, Carousel, The King and I. These are musicals where the, the book, the narrative, is deeply intertwined with the songs, right? Um, because for a lot of them, Oscar Hammerstein wrote the lyrics and the book. Um, 
And because they now have stories that are intertwined with the music, what they end up doing is they start sending really powerful social messages through their music. Um, they are pointing to, they were pointing out prejudice, the treatment of immigrants. Um, you know, obviously these are probably connected to their family's experiences, right? But these are ways that they are also telling the Jewish story, right? About the underdog who makes it big um, through other people's stories. So Showboat, right, is about a, a mixed race singer on a showboat in the South. Um, that, that was Oscar Hammerstein and Jerome Kern. Um, we can also look at Lerner and Lowe's My Fair Lady, right, which is about a, a flower girl with a Cockney accent who makes her way into mainstream society. Um, they're writing about the Jewish experience through outsider characters that are not Jewish, right? Very often through the story of African-Americans in America. Um, the song we're going to look at is from South Pacific, which is a musical from 1949 about a nurse stationed in the South Pacific during World War II who falls in love with a French expatriate with mixed race children. And it also includes a romance between a Marine and a Tonkinese woman, like a, a local native woman. Um, and then having to reckon with how their relationship would be viewed by people in America. Um, so this song is called, You've Got to Be Carefully Taught. And I think it has a, a very pointed message that I, I think will be immediately clear um, once we hear it. What makes this is from the movie. Why do you have this feeling, you and she? I do not believe it is born in you. I do not believe it. It's not born in you. It happens after you're born. You've got to be taught to hate and fear. You've got to be taught from year to year. It's got to be drummed in your dear little ear. You've got to be carefully taught. You've got to be taught to be afraid of people whose eyes are oddly made and people whose skin is a different shade. You've got to be carefully taught. You've got to be taught before it's too late, before you are six or seven or eight, to hate all the people your relatives hate. You've got to be carefully taught. You've got to be carefully taught. I feel like that, that nationwide event may have already passed. Um, but this is a, this is clearly a song where the message is racism is bad, um, but also that it's something that comes from uh, be, being told. And, and taught to be to, to hate others. Um, this was a very controversial song. Um, Rogers and Hammerstein basically had to fight their uh, funders to keep it in the show. Um, when South Pacific toured in the American South, um, there were lawmakers in Georgia who passed a bill outlying enter outlawing entertainment, and I'll quote, with an underlying philosophy inspired by Moscow. This was, of course. Uh, you know, in the in the the Cold War with McCarthyism on the rise, um, and one lawmaker said a song justifying interracial marriage was implicitly a threat to the American way of life. Um, 
so th this is one of the ways that from the, the American Jewish experience, Richard Rogers and Oscar Hammerstein um, learned that they had an obligation to use their art to uh, fight for justice, essentially. Yeah, that, so this song has been used in, in teaching. That's wonderful. Um, I think it's really good that it's in there. I think it's really good that the show got popular and that people hear it. Um, because, you know, Rogers and Hammerstein, their, their family experience was the Jewish immigrant experience. That's what they knew. That's what they wrote about. But they told it through people who weren't Jewish. Um, there is a quote I have now from, from Kurt Weil, who we're not going to hear a piece of music from, but he was, he was a famous composer in Germany before he moved uh, to the U.S. He's known for, for Three Penny Opera over here. Um, but here's what he says, and this is about the immigrant experience. Um, what the immigrants of today are bringing to this country is not more and not less than what immigrants from earlier persecutions have brought here. All they ever could bring was the work of their hands and the work of their heads. That's what they offer to this country and what the people of this country are so ready to accept. But that is just what has made the American civilization, the accumulation of talent from all parts of the world, freed from oppression and limitation, ready to give and to build. And that's what people like um, the Gershwins and Irving Berlin and Rodgers and Hammerstein and Hart and so many others experienced. They were able to cut their teeth in the, the American music, um, in American musical theater, when there were so many other jobs that wouldn't accept them by virtue of them being Jewish. I mean, it was an opportunity for them to tell their stories, the story of Jews, just never in the, the guise of stories about Jews. Um, which brings me to another musical that was originally going to be a story explicitly about Jews, but then was changed. You may actually know it. Um, essentially, Jerome Robbins um, wanted to direct a musical called East Side Story about Jews and Catholics. And it was basically supposed to be kind of a modern day telling of Romeo and Juliet, right? Um, does anyone know what that eventually became? This East Side Story? You can just open your mic if you want. West Side I want people to say it. It became West Side Story, right? Instead of being about Jews and Catholics, which was, you know, an immigrant experience happening more at the beginning of the 20th century, um, it became a conflict between Puerto Rican and Italian immigrants, which is what was going on at the time, right? Um, but it's still about the, the immigrant experience. And the song I wanted to play is one called America. Um, and I think what's What's important about it is that it, it is about struggling to maintain your identity and your culture um, in American society. And then I'll talk a little bit about who, who wrote it. Uh, full screen. And this is from the, the 2009 Broadway revival, which really interestingly included a lot more, it included a lot more Spanish. When the characters who would speak Spanish were, were alone, very often they would be singing in Spanish, but not in this recording. Big. 
and their bullets flying. I like the island Manhattan. I know you do. Smoke on your pipe and pull that in. Minamani! I like to be in America. Okay, by me in America. Everything free in America. For small fee in America. San Juan. I know we both you can get on. Bye bye. Hundreds of flowers in full bloom. Hundreds of people in each room. Automobile in America. Chromium steel in America. Wires plugged in, in America. Very big deal in America. So I'm, I'm going to pause it there. I think we get the idea. This is a song about you know, what it means to live somewhere and long for somewhere else, you know, romanticism for the old country. Um, now, th this musical was written, uh, was composed by Leonard Bernstein with lyrics by uh, a relative unknown at the time who went by the name of Stephen Sondheim. Um, Leonard Bernstein is, of course, Jewish. We all know this. Um, he wrote symphonies about the you know, he wrote symphonies that included the Kaddish and Jeremiah. Like he was a very Jewish musician. Um, almost nothing he wrote for Broadway was, was really that Jewish. He didn't really write Jewish music for Broadway. But you can see that this musical in particular speaks to the immigrant experience, which for a lot of the century was the Jewish experience. Um, which brings me to, uh, you know, the pinnacle of American musical theater achievement, a man named Stephen Sondheim. Um, you know, I, I wonder if, you know, my, my lips are even worthy to, to say his name, but uh, they need to be today. Um, Stephen Sondheim was essentially foster fathered by Oscar Hammerstein II um, because he was friends with uh, Hammerstein's son. Oscar Hammerstein had him write uh, four different musicals with sort of four different stipulations. Then uh, Hammerstein tore them all to shreds and helped him make them really, really good. He said it was the most, the best learning experience a person could ever have. Um, and his sort of first foray on the Broadway was uh, writing lyrics for West Side Story. Um, Jerome Robbins afterwards wanted him to write, to, to compose and write the musical Gypsy, um, but Ethel Merman uh, refused because uh, she was worried that Sondheim was so young. And I, uh, envy anyone who lives in the alternate universe where Sondheim both wrote and composed Gypsy. If you know anyone over there, um, tell them to look me up. Uh, and, and what's interesting, this is what I think is really interesting about Stephen Sondheim as a Jewish composer on Broadway. I think that he was not dealing with the same struggles that other Jews on Broadway were dealing with. He did not really write about the Jewish experience or Jewish stories. I think he was clearly... He was not struggling with what it meant to be Jewish in America. He was struggling with what it meant to be gay in America. So all of his musicals tend to be about trying to understand, to understand love, essentially. That was sort of um, the, the, the axe that he had to grind. Um, so he didn't really write about anything Jewish. He didn't really have Jewish characters explicitly. I think there's one line in the musical, Anyone Can Whistle, that actually mentions Jews. Um, but there's a reason that I'm including him, and that's because he's the best uh, Broadway composer who ever lived. But also because what, what we see is that he, he grew up in a time when Jews were much more comfortable in, in the United States. They were a lot more 
assimilated, a lot more accepted, didn't face a lot of the same institutional barriers. We know now that anti-Semitism still exists, but he was almost accepted enough in society that he could focus on the other ways that he wasn't being accepted in society, right? So I think this is the last song we're gonna hear. This is um, a song about, I, I guess the true meaning of love. It's from uh, his 1970 musical Company, um, which is about a uh, bachelor and all of his friends are couples and it's kind of that struggle. And this particular recording I love because it includes uh, Sondheim being kind of a tyrant. This is from the documentary of the recording of the, or, or of the original Broadway cast recording. So let's just uh, give this a listen. Being alive, take one. It starts with some notes. Someone to hold you too close. Um, you're very good, and I don't want to spoil something that's potentially marvelous, and I need more guitar. Uh, let's, let's hear guitar. This is the first time I really like to feel rhythmic looseness, which you do, right here. That's, that's the explosion. That's the flower bursting. That's where you can take rhythmic liberty. That's what you're doing. That's nice and free. Well, maybe there's one more ending. Let's find out, huh? There'd be no practically swallow of a mic on the end. Okay, I'll stay on. <laughs> also, we're gonna we're gonna slow up the tempo of this. Someone to hold you too close. Someone to hurt you too deep. Someone to sit in your chair to ruin your sleep. That's true, but there's more than that. Is that all you think there is to it? You've got so many reasons for not being with someone, but Robert, you haven't one good reason for being alone. Come on, you're onto something, Bobby. You're onto something. Someone to need you too much. Someone to know you too well. Someone to pull you up short, to put you through hell. You see what you look for, you know. You're not a kid anymore, Robbie. I don't think you'll ever be a kid again, kiddo. Hey, buddy, don't be afraid that it won't be perfect. The only thing to be afraid of really is that it won't be. Don't stop now. Keep going. Someone you have to let in. Someone whose feelings you spare. Someone who, like it or not, will want you to share a little, a lot. And what does all that mean? Robert, how do you know so much about it when you've never been there? It's much better living it than looking at it, Robert. Add him up, Bobby. Add him up. Someone to crowd you with love. Someone to force you to care. Oh, come on. Someone to make you come through. Who'll always be there, as frightened as you. I think I have to pause it there, sadly, but thank you for indulging me on that song in particular. Um, get, gets me every time. But I, I hope you can sort of see the arc from 
the beginnings of Jewish involvement in musical theater to now. We start with Yiddish theater where all of the stories are Jewish. We see the early composers who take some of their Jewish musical influences and start writing songs for much bigger audiences. Um, we see Jews telling the Jewish story of oppression and redemption through the stories of other outsider people. And eventually we get to Sondheim who is almost exceptional as a, as a Jewish composer on Broadway for having written nothing even identifiably Jewish, right? Jews are, are so fully integrated into the world of Broadway that, that you almost don't know who's Jewish anymore. But the point is, if you look at someone on Broadway, there's a very good chance they're Jewish. Um, next week, what we're going to look at are those explicitly Jewish stories. Once um, composers for, for American audiences start feeling more comfortable telling the story of the Jews through the story of the Jews, if you get what I'm saying. Um, that's where we're going to get to Fiddler. That's where, when we're going to get to some others. I, we're going to have some, some lesser known gems and there's going to be a lot more listening to music than talking. Um, but I hope that this impresses upon you that the, the story of Broadway is the story of the Jews and vice versa. I think what's good about, and what's good about Broadway is what's good about the Jews and vice versa. So I, I know it's one o'clock. So if anyone has to, to go get to, a, get to a meeting or something like that, although I don't envy anyone going out in this weather right now, um, feel free. But if anyone wants to stick around to like ask some questions, um, I, I, I'm really happy to share them or, or just share things that came up during this. I'm going to stop recording, though, I think. Um, thank you all for being here. Um, thank you, Rabbi. That was excellent. This thank is my you. It's my greatest joy to be able to teach this, honestly. Thank you. Wonderful, uh, wonderful production.